making the announcements and getting ready to take up the offering that we have, uh, we've been in Romans chapter 8 now, this is our third week, uh, well we've been in Romans 8 longer than three weeks, but we've been on the subject of prayer in a study on Romans based on verses 26 and 27 and uh, some of the great material that we have that we found there. And I, I think you're beginning to see now that uh, Romans chapter 8 is just an incredible chapter. Uh, the book of Romans itself is an incredible chapter. Uh, but when you get into chapter 8, you're in the heart of this great book, and it deals with the uh, aspect of our getting our glorified bodies and all the things that go along with that. You'll remember the, that the first week when we read this passage, uh, we began to talk about the misconception of prayer. And I showed you that most people today really don't understand what prayer is. In fact, the Bible says, we're going we're to read it here in just a moment, that one of the infirmities that we have, and I showed you that the Bible lists three infirmities that we have to struggle with, that one of them is the fact we don't know how to pray. And I went through and I kind of laid out for you the idea that people get about prayer, where they get it from, and most of it doesn't come from the Bible, and therefore uh, it leads to a lot of frustration in a lot of people's lives. Second week, we talked about uh, the, a, a really a key issue in your life, and I hope now that, uh, you know, this would have been last week that you, uh, you, you, you went through that, and that is, how does God answer our prayer? You know, again, there's a lot of misconception about that. We get the idea that, uh, you know, um, that God does it one way, when actually we saw that week when we went back through the tabernacle and looked at all of those things that were there, it was an incredible uh, picture of how God and why God answers the prayers and why sometimes He doesn't answer our prayers. And now we know better. You know, we've talked about the, uh, the, the importance of Bible principles. And I guess I've had several of you ask me about that this week. And, and just to give you a better, you know, understanding of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about learning Bible principles. And, uh, you know, uh, and I told you how that, and I showed you many, many examples, how that in everything in our lives that we do, every decision we make, we have to have a, a principle in the Word of God that, that guides us in that process. The reason why we make such bad choices sometimes and the reason why we make such bad decisions and get ourselves over our heads, so to speak, in many areas of our life is because simply we don't make those decisions based on the principles in the Word of God. Now, that word principle is kind of like a nebulous term. You know, you say, well, principle, what is that exactly the means? And I've had several of you ask me that this week in our little one-on-one -on -one time together. And basically, when I'm talking about a principle, I'm saying this. You know, God has an opinion that is the right opinion about everything in life. That's really the Bible in its most basic form. And I know the Bible lays out the plan of God. It lays out the second coming and all of the aspects. But in a very practical, basic sense, the Bible was written to give us God's opinion on everything in life. And I went through some of them last week. You know, I told you that, that when something happens in your life, you automatically uh, look at the principles. You go to the principles. You have a decision to make. And I, I took it down even so far where I told you that if you buy a new puppy, you get a cat, you get some uh, kind of little animal that's going to be your pet. The Bible even tells you about how to deal with that. And somebody said, well, what is it? Well, it's back in Proverbs where it talks about the fact that a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, you see? In other words, there's things, there's responsibility to things that we do, every aspect of your life. Now, when I talk about Bible principles in your life and my life, here's what I'm talking about. This book, 
God gives you his opinion on everything in life. He gives his opinion on who to marry, who not to marry. He gives you his opinion on every situation, every circumstance you're going to find yourself in. He's going to give you his opinion, and many times they're found in stories that shows you the cause and the effect of what happens when you don't follow those opinions. And the Bible is a book that gives you God's opinion on everything in life from his perspective. Now, the older I get in the Lord, and I know that many of you, if not most of you, are, are, you're not necessarily young Christians, but you're still finding your way along this thing here. But the older I get, the more I understand that the Christian life is simply one process. And the more you put this process in your life, the better off your life is going to be. And that simple process is simply reading the Bible, finding out what God says about everything in life, find out what His opinion is on everything in life, and then simply casting out my opinion and making my opinion God's opinion. That's basically what the Christian life is. It's becoming more, I talk about becoming more Christ-like. I'm not talking about going out and buying a pair of sandals and a white robe and letting your beard grow. I'm talking about in their thought process becoming more Christ-like by letting His opinion become your opinion. That you view the world, people, circumstances, situations that you come up against in life and the decisions you got to make from what He says and how He would deal with them, not based on many times as our homespun theology of how we get out of the mess that we're in. And we ought to know now that, uh, you know, the Bible is like an owner's manual. You bought your car, if you look in the glove box, there's an owner's manual. It tells you every aspect of your car. And, uh, you know, the Bible is is our owner's manual. It tells us about where everything is that that we need. You get a flat tire, and the, the real challenge today is to find a spare tire in your car. And then the jack. When I grew up, they made real jacks. Now they make these little goofy things. First thing I do when I get a new car is throw that jack away and go down and buy one of them little hydraulic jacks that really work because those other ones will kill you. But anyway, that's not the message this morning. The bottom line is this. In that owner's manual is everything you need to know. Everything you need to know about how that car operates. And the Bible is our owner's manual. God wrote it, He gave it to us, and everything in there tells us what we need to know about ourselves. Somebody says, well, I have a struggle with my salvation. I can't believe that that I'm really saved or God would save me. You know why that is? Because the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 that God has given us a record of our salvation. There is a clear, detailed, title deed, a record of salvation for you and for me if we're saved found in the Bible. You know why so many of God's people struggle with salvation? They don't know God's opinion on it, see? The older I get, the more I realize that my job as a child of God is just simply to uh, throw out my own opinions in life that have gotten me nothing but heartache and problems and come to the point in my life where I make God's opinion. That's our job, and that's why everything that we do, we try to bring it back to the Bible. And that's why in this little mini-series on prayer, you're getting everything how God thinks and looks at prayer. And today we're going to look at another aspect of it. Last week we saw that when we pray, the Holy Spirit of God does His work. He takes our prayer. The Bible says He makes intercession for us according to the mind of God's Spirit. We know that as defined out of the book of Philippians and in the book of Corinthians, that the mind of the Spirit is the Word of God. 
Let Paul told you and me to let this mind be in us, which also in Christ Jesus. He told another group of Christians that, uh, that we have the mind of Christ. And of course, the mind of Christ is the Word of God. We have now everything that we need. And then uh, it says in Romans chapter 8, let me read this, it says this. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. And this is where we've been now for the last three or four weeks, and then we'll move out from here. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, there's the Word of God, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to uh, the will of God. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you today to bless us as we come to this great passage again. And we look at this third installment on prayer, how that now that we are to pray and help us to learn uh, the correct, the biblical way, the intelligent way that we get uh, with God what we need to get out of it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, down at verse 27, look what it says there. And it says, and he that and he that searches the hearts. He that searches the hearts. Now, if you've been here since, if you've been here the last couple of weeks on this, let me ask you a question. Based on what we've already talked about, and best on what I've laid out, and raise your hand on this, based on what we've already talked about and when I laid out, when, the, when you start to pray and the Holy Spirit of God begins to search your heart, let me ask you, what is he, now I know you're going to have a lot of, you know, answers you could give to this, but we're looking for the answer that we've talked about in our Bible in the last couple of weeks. What is he examining and looking for inside your heart when you pray? When it says, he that searches the heart. What is he searching for? What is he looking for? Somebody raise your hand and tell me. Laura? That's right, but I want a specific thing that we talked about. Troy? That's what she said, and you're absolutely right. Pam? Motive, that's right, but that's not what I'm looking for. Maybe I just better forget this sermon and preach the one I preached last week over Yeah, Biblical principles? No, that's good. They're all right, but you're all wrong. What is it? You can have your hand up, didn't you? Or are you just going to slap her? She needs it. Go ahead. The cross. The cro- that's true, but now you're, you're, you're the hot one. They were kind of cold, but you're, you're burning. Want to take it any farther? Um, Come on. I can't take it any farther. Okay, you can't think any farther. I can't hear. Yes, ma'am. Okay, but what is that? That's, you're all right, but put it into one word or the one concept that I showed you in the tabernacle last week. Yeah. No. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, that's right. He's looking for what kind of fire you've kindled this thing with. You're all were right. Troy was right, and he wasn't even here last week. <clears throat> you're all were right. Just go to show years ago. You paid attention, Troy. One time. That was that time. I remember that time, too. He's searching to see what kind of fire. Remember we talked about in the picture of the tabernacle that Aaron's two boys were killed because they offered strange fire? And I showed you that that fire, that they, that they lit the altar of incense, a picture of our prayer life, had to come off the brazen altar. The picture of Christ's death on the cross. Now, we're going to see why that is this morning in just a little bit. But that's what he's searching for. When you and I pray, the Holy Spirit of God looks inside, and the first thing he looks for is where did this prayer originate from? That's what he looks for. And of course, Moses or Aaron's two boys, God killed them for offering strange fire. 
I doubt if God will kill you for that, but uh, this is why you have problems. We have problems in our prayer. Now, this is why, basically, we don't get our prayers answered. And this is why we have the misconception about prayer, which I told you last week, that probably 90% of the things that we pray for and we're asking God for, the answers are already in the book in getting God's thoughts and getting God's opinion. They're already there. The problem is, we don't understand the concept that when we, when we pray to God, we speak to God, but when we read the Bible, God speaks back to us. I, I don't know how many times I've talked to somebody and they're saying, I'm going through this great time. I'm going through this great problem in my life. And, I, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and God to give me an answer. And I asked him, I said, how much time are you spending reading the Bible? Oh, I'm so upset, and I'm so nervous. I can't, just can't concentrate. I, I just can't. I can't just get, I can't just read it. I just, my mind wanders. I just, and then they wonder why they don't get the answer. The answer is in that book through the principles that God has written for us as the owner's manual of our lives. And today we want to look at another great aspect of prayer. This is very important. We looked at misconceptions about prayer. We looked at how that God answers our prayer. And now we're going to talk about how to pray and what to pray for. You know, when I think of my infirmity, uh, not just in prayer, but all of my infirmities, but when I think when the Bible talks about my infirmity of not knowing how to pray, you know what verse automatically comes to mind? And we want to turn here and look at this. It's in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8, 9, and 10 is really my verse for me that shows me why I don't get and I don't understand things and shows me what my, my fatal flaw is in my character. And this is your fatal flaw in your character. When the Bible talks about the fact that we don't know how to pray, this is the fatal flaw that we struggle with if not only in our prayer life, but everything in life. Now look at Isaiah chapter 55 and look at verse 8. He says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now that's a simple fact. And it's, everybody here can understand that verse and apply that to your life and to my life of what the problem is. We look at the circumstances of life from a human standpoint. We look at the circumstances of life from a, from a, from a physical standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, from a human standpoint. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember, uh, somebody that came over and they talked about, is it wrong to hate? And I told them, I said, well, it's not wrong to hate uh, as long as you understand how the Bible defines hate. <clears throat> and I took them over to Psalms, and I showed them where the Bible says in Psalms 139 that where God hates. But when it talks about God hating, you know what it says? It says that God hates them with a perfect hatred. Now, that's the defining verse in your Bible on hate, by the way. You know what it means when God says He hates things with a perfect hatred? It means that God doesn't have His emotions involved. It means that God isn't taking something personal. It means that God wrote a book that is absolute, and up against that book's principles, when something goes against it, God hates it, but He doesn't hate it because He's got His emotions involved. It's like being in a war. 
If you're in a war and, and uh, there's somebody on the other side over there shooting at you and you shooting back at him. My, my uncle one time was, I had an uncle was on Okinawa and he told this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but he told this story. He says he was over on this side of the lines and he was shooting at a Japanese soldier that was on the other side of the lines. And he says the day went on and he'd take a pot shot at him and then he'd shoot one back at him. My uncle, you know, he, he, he yelled over there and said, hey, let's knock it off. Let's kind of take a break here and eat some, eat some sea rations. Japanese soldier yelled back and said, okay. Or maybe it was, okay. So they're sitting down there. My uncle eating, the Japanese soldier sitting next to him, eating the sea rats. My uncle says, where are you from? Japanese boy says, Yokohama. My uncle said, well, what are we fighting for? I'm from Tulsa. <laughs> My point is this. That, you'll get that about 3 o'clock this afternoon when you, you know, and it'll just hit you. My point is this. When you're in a war and there's a guy over there you're shooting at, he's trying to kill you, you're trying to kill him. He's trying to kill you. You don't hate the guy. You don't even know who the guy is. In fact, probably many of the old World War II vets that I've talked to, you know what they've said about the men they've killed? There's a lingering thing inside of them because the guy said, you know what? I didn't have nothing personal. He might have been a great guy. He probably liked the fish just like me and you. Uh, I do. And probably if there wasn't a war on, him and I got to get along just fine. But you know what? He killed the guy. He shot him. He killed him. He bayoneted him. He threw a hand grenade in. He lit him with a flamethrower. He killed the guy. But he didn't hate the guy. He didn't even know the guy. You see, hatred, from God's standpoint, God hates with a perfect hatred. No emotion involved. And when you look at principles in the Bible, and you look at the things that you and I have to deal with, uh, we've got to come to the point that that's our biggest struggle. You know what life is for a child of God? It's either going to be God's viewpoint in your life or it's going to be your own viewpoint in your life. You're either going to do it your way or you're going to do it God's way. Doing it your way, my way, will usually wind up in the bad trouble side. Doing it God's way by learning the principles, applying the principles, making God's thoughts my thoughts and putting it into my life, that's the way it needs to go. And whether we know it or not this morning, this verse is the key to our prayer dilemma. La a couple of Thursday nights ago, well, somebody asked a question and connected that. A couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question about what happens to somebody that dies. Where do they go? They talked about the verses of, of you know, what do they do in heaven? Where are they at? And I, and I, and I laid that thing out. And if you were there that night, you, you, you know how I laid it out without going into it this morning. And I showed you that most, coming from back from the Bible, going straight through the Bible and laying that thing out, I showed you that most people's conception of heaven is totally off base. And the answer I gave to you that night is a very, very, very basic, simple answer. It isn't that the answer is hard to, to, it's complicated. The answer is hard because of the fact that as a human being, try to grasp the concept of an eternal God. Me who has to run by a watch, who has to run by a clock, that everything in my life is scheduled to try to contemplate a time and a place and a God that knows no time. That there is no morning, no afternoon, no evening. There is no 9 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 10 o'clock. The time is not relevant anymore. 
Everything in our lives as human beings is built on a, on a 28-day calendar in the Bible and Ecclesiastes. And it tells us there's a time to this, a time to that, a time to this, a time to that, time to that. But when you get into eternity, there is no more time. How in the world do I, as a human being who is shackled by time, understand a God in eternity who does not have any concept of time in the sense that I do? He doesn't have a watch. He doesn't need a calendar. Where he's at, there is no time. And how, when I die, do I make that transition from a timing place into a place where there is no time? Well, the answer is real simple. But grasping the concept from my standpoint as a human being is hard. It's hard. And this is why so many people struggle with things in the Bible. This is something that in time, every one of you need to come to the place in your life, if you continually to grow spiritually, that you begin to see every circumstance in your life. This is what Scott's class is all about. This is why everything we do on Thursday night is getting you in a framework, getting your mind in a frame set where you start to begin to look at the situation the way that it is. You know what Scott's going to teach? He's going to teach you the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. You know why that's so important? Because the reason why you don't view yourself the way God sees you this morning. Some of you, you have problems with who you are. Some of you have problems of where you've been and what you've done. Some of you are in the situations right now that, that you know what, they're struggling with. And the number one problem is you're seeing yourself wherever you've come from. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, you're seeing yourself from your own human standpoint. You've got to break out of that someday. You've got to get to the point where you begin to see yourself, not the way you look at yourself based on your emotional tags to all your life, but you sever that and you begin to look at yourself as a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. Getting that perspective in your life Versus your own personal perspective is where it starts. And then we just add to it from there. And that's the importance of biblical principles. The ability as a human being to understand how an eternal God looks at things, how He thinks about things, how He accomplishes issues and does things, and how He looks at the issues that I face. There is probably not one person in here this morning and if you are, you're probably only on borrowed time, and your time's coming probably sometime before the end of the day. But there's probably not one person in here this morning that is not dealing with some or maybe multiple issues in your own life. You're struggling with something in your own life right now. And the only way you're going to get past that, the only way as a child of God you're going to get the victory in that is to see that thing that you're going through from God's standpoint, and quit seeing it through all the emotional things that we look at our own problems through. That's the only way that it works. I've dealt men who were alcoholics. And I've told men who were alcoholics or drug addiction. I've told them, I said, you know what? You will never get over your addiction. You will never get over your addiction until you as a child of God see your addiction as God sees it. 
As long as you look at it as an illness, a sickness, or you even tag the word sin on it. it you, you'll never get over it until you understand from the Bible that things that go against God's law are anathema. They're absolutely against every principle. Until you see that whatever we do in our life is absolutely against God, and then we, 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 we try to change that in our life, you'll never get over it. If you had some glaring, and we all do, guys, but if you had some glaring, glaring, glaring issue in your life that just drove your own wife nuts, and you want to make life just a little bit better, you can, right now, stop doing what we are doing that causes the issue and then adjust it into the right, into the right frame of mind. It's the same way with God. When you begin to see what we go through and the problem that I'm facing from God's standpoint, then and only then do we have the wherewithal to stop and fix what we're going through. You know what the problem is? We don't see it from God's standpoint. We see it from our standpoint. And you know what? When we see it from our standpoint and we really don't hate it and we really don't want to quit it, you know what we do? We'll hang out with people just like us who will make us feel good about ourselves, even though we're really against everything that God wants us to be. That's what human nature does. That's why many people don't like to come to church. They don't like to come to church because here, when you walk in the door, you may be my best buddy in the whole wide world. I may love you up one side and down the other. But when, but when you sit in this seat and the music's over and I stand behind that sacred pulpit, I don't know any friends. I preach the truth. And if it gets on me like it gets on you, that's what it's supposed to do, see? And most people, they'll go to church a couple of times and, ah, that's not what I want to hear. So they'll, they'll search around, find somebody that tells them exactly what they want to hear, and then they'll just get comfortable with that. You never, ever, when looking for a church, and you may not come to this one, that's your deal, but bottom line is this. I'll give you a little bit of advice. Whenever you're looking for a church, a pastor, or somebody in your life that's going to hold you accountable spiritually, don't ever find somebody who just always tells you what you want to hear. You're going to get in trouble real quick that way. You know how I know the Bible? You know how I know that I love this book? You know how I know I love it more than anything else? You know what the greatest proof is? that I haven't thrown in the trash can 35 years ago. This book doesn't paint a picture nice of me at all. I would much rather have it be a book that opened up and there was Bob with a white robe with a halo on. I would much rather read the stories back there of the great uh, men uh, that, and, and my name be in there. I would much like that book to uh, paint a picture of me that when I read it, oh, I see how great I am. And I see how, I mean, add another, add, a, add another line to that great song, How Great Thou Art. The third verse is How Great I Am. And we just all go along there. But it doesn't do that. Every page I open that book, it tells me something wrong with me. Every place I go, it's jabbing me again. Every place I go, he's prodding me again. There's hardly a place I can go in there that, that, that I just don't get beat up on. But after a while, when you realize the process of life is making God's opinion your opinion, as the great verse in Proverbs things, he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things become sweet. Why? Because you know it's for your good. I know that God would never hurt me. I know that God's prodding and pulling and pushing for me is a good thing. 
There's a book out you all ought to read. I can't remember the name of it, but I saw this guy. He's dead now. Somebody will remember it. It was the guy that had pancreatic cancer. And he spent the last year of his life. You know, you remember what his name is? Huh? Yes, that's what it is again. The last lecture. That's right. And he spent the last part of his life dying of pancreatic cancer, going around talking to everybody for his family, and he died a while back. And it's one of the greatest things I've ever read in my life and one of the things I ever went through in my life. You know what he said? You know what he said? He said when he was a football coach, when he was a football player in high school, the coach used to just give him trouble all the time. It seemed like that he would camp out on his plays and just mark the things that he did wrong. That he would just be on him all the time. Put it to him every time he turned around. After one practice, he goes in there and he's coming out of the shower. One of his friends said, man, that coach has got it in for you. He said, doesn't that bother you the way he just keeps beating you up and pointing out all the things that you do wrong? And you know what the guy said? Now, this is why when he had pancreatic cancer and he's getting ready to die, he could focus on something else other than himself. But you know what he said? He said, you know what? All that means is that coach sees all the potential in me that I don't see. And his being hard on me and rough on me and and kicking me six weeks for Sunday is his way of extracting out of me what he sees that is good that I can't see. Now, there's a lesson, ladies and gentlemen, in that. Because sometimes that's what God does with us. And we are so selfish with who we are that we don't like that. This is part of the problem that we're going to talk about this morning in the way that we approach prayer and the way that we do some things. The importance of knowing how to pray correctly, how to pray biblically, and how to pray intelligently. You know, most of you were alive for the first Gulf War in the 90s. And that was probably the first war that we ever had that you got to go to war and never left your, never left your front room. I mean, if you remember that the, 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 in World War II, you realize in World War II there was things that happened that nobody even found about until after the war? You re, everybody know about D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, when they went ashore in France? Everybody knows D-Day. Do you know that eight weeks before D-Day, they were, they were practicing a staged event on the north coast of, of, of Great Britain, and they had all of the things that were in play there, and they had like 30,000 guys that were going to go to shore. And you realize in the middle of that rehearsal for the biggest day in the history of the world as far as combat is concerned, two German E-boats snuck in there and sank three LSTs, and 1,900 American boys died in a training exercise, never got one foot on Omaha Beach or Utah Beach. They never fired one shot at anger. 1,900 young men died, drowned it in the English Channel, drowned it in the North Sea because two German e-boats snuck in on a training mission, sank three LSTs, and those things sank in no time and lost all those boys. You know what? It wasn't until 1951 that anybody knew about that. The parents just got a standard letter, your son was killed in action. End of story. There was a news media blackout. Nobody even talked about it. Nobody did anything about it. Nobody, there was many, many times when things went on, but the news media were were held at bay. They never got one piece of the story. 
That changed with Korea. It certainly changed with Vietnam. But boy, did it change with the first Gulf War. Now, they had news crews embedded into the very combat troops. Still today, you go to war every day on CNN. You go to war every day on the news in the 90s. And the Gulf War probably was the fastest war on record. It was led by one of the greatest generals, I think, that ever lived. And here's another guy's life story you ought to read. General Norman Schwarzkopf. Called him Storm and Norman. His battle plan was simple, thorough, and decisive. You know what he did? In the first 15 minutes of the war, we won the war. Now, the war went on for several months after that, but the war was over in the first 15 minutes. You know what he did? In the first 15 minutes, they had already targeted where all the communication stations were for the Iraqi uh, from Baghdad to everywhere around. And in the first 15 minutes, while he put a, he put a, a ploy evasion on, on, on one side of the country, what he did is snuck in under the radar, and in the first 15 minutes, he destroyed every communication center that the Iraqis had. At that point, after the first 15 minutes, nobody could communicate with the forward areas. The areas in the back have to depend on the orders they get of what to do because they're looking back, looking at the whole thing and telling people where to go to plug the gaps. They couldn't do that. In one failed swoop, he took out every communication statement. You know what? We live in Missouri, right down the road. You know what you got down there? You got uh, Warrensburg, uh, Whiteman Air Force Base. You know what they did? Whiteman Air Force Base is the stealth bomber. You know what they did? They loaded up with bombs in, in, in Whiteman, down in Missouri. They flew off Whiteman Air Force Base, down in Missouri. Flew all the way to Iraq and, 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 and bombed them. Dropped their bombs on them. Flew all the way back, loaded up, and they were crossing each other in the sky. From Missouri. They would refuel in the air. The flight took like 19 hours round trip. They'd load them up with bombs. They'd take them off from Whiteman. They'd fly over Baghdad. They'd drop their laser-guided bombs. They'd fly back. They'd load up some more, get another crew, and they were passing each other in the air from Missouri. Then the cruise missiles went in. Oh, the thing. And in 15 minutes, the war was over. I like General Schwarzkopf when he finally gave his briefing. I'm going to use his word now. It's a little rough, so I don't normally talk this way, but I love to cuss in the pulpit and get away with it. <laughs> he says, ladies and gentlemen, what we did, he said, it's simply this. He says, we sent our first strikes in and took out all the communication center, and then for the next 21 days, he said, we bombed the hell out of them. And that's exactly what he did. They had all these, all these Republican guards, the cream of the crop, great fighters. They had all of, the, all of the men and the armies that were out there. And after they took out their communications and they had no contact, you know what he did? He found out where their positions were and he were 21 days. 21 days! Every minute, every 10 minutes, every, every hour, he bombed them consistently at the end of that 21 days. I don't know if you saw it or not. They were stumbling out of there. The, the most terrifying, grueling thing you can ever go through is an artillery bombardment on top of your position. I mean, when they hit the trees, that splinters the trees, and they, they set the fuses so if you're in a wood that they go off about 30 feet off the ground, not only do you get the shrapnel, but it splinters the trees, and those trees, the uh, size of a toothpick, will go through five guys. And they drop those bombs for 21 days. 
When they were done and they moved in, those guys were so dazed. They were so out of control. They were so beside themselves. They've got actually footage where they were, they were surrendering themselves to CNN crews. They just wanted somebody to get them out of here. Let's put that into a biblical perspective. You see, without the ability to communicate to higher headquarters, they were out of the battle. And without the ability, I said last week, a Christian will only be as strong as his or her individual prayer life back to headquarters. And where Stormin' Norman took out the communication and then bombed the hell out of them for 21 days, what the devil does, he destroys our communication and then he bombs the heaven out of us for 21 days. If you don't know how to communicate biblically, intelligently, and correctly, your battle's over before you get started. And that's why 99% of God's people have lost the battle because there's no communication that works with headquarters where God is. There's no two-way communication with God. When the devil destroys your prayer life, he takes everything from you. Now, in your Bible, and you want to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. In your Bible, and this is the definitive passage on it. In your Bible, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, you were told that there's four types of prayer. And I want to give these to you as we start to go through this. Four types of prayer. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, what Paul did right there was he told you there's four types of prayer. You'll find these four types of prayer defined for you in the Bible. I'm going to give them to you here in a second. All right, the first thing is supplications. Supplications is the things that we think we need. Our supply. The word supplication comes from the word supply. Lord, I'm out of supplies. I need this. And, of course, the verse for that would be Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 along with many other ones. The second thing he lists there is simply the word prayers. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 27 is the first time you find the word prayer in the Bible. We know from the law first mentioned, that's going to be pretty valuable. So here's where we get the word concept of prayer. And this particular thing here, when he talks about prayer, it's simply talking with God. And back there in Sammy, you have one of the greatest examples that I've ever saw in my life of how your life and my life should be in our communication with God. You know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of David just sitting and talking with God. You ought to to read that prayer. You ought to read that conversation. You ought to see the things that he's talking to God about. He's talking about the things that God has done for him. He's talking about how much he loves God. He's talking about the things that he wants to do for God. And you know what? Some of the things he lists in there, he never got to do. But it's his openness with God of having a conversation 24-7 where he just, he doesn't have any need. There's nothing that he's asking for. He's just keeping the lines of communication open that him and God just have a good old talk. The third one is intercession or intercessory prayer. And that will be found in, uh, in many places in the Old Testament. One that comes to mind right off the bat is Exodus chapter 32, down around verse 9, I think it is. 
And that's where you're praying for others. And a great example of that would be Moses praying for the children of Israel and taking their intercessory for them to God. Great example. Then the third type of prayer that he lists here is the giving of thanks. And that's just where you're thankful for what God tells you to do. Now, I'm not saying you can't add all these together and sometimes, I'm not saying you've got to say, okay, Lord, right now we're just going to be a suffering prayer, so get your suffering cord out and put this down. They can go back over, you see. It all, go, all blended together. But there's times that we just give thanks. You know what our biggest problem is in our prayer life, other than the fact that we don't think like God does? I'll tell you something else. It's the fact that we take God for granted, especially in America. You know, there's a really good upside to this church, and that is the fact that every time you come here, you get the Bible. You'll never get a dud. You'll never get Bob's personal opinion. There won't be a day that I don't show up that I ain't ready to do what God's called me to do. That day will never happen. You may catch me on a Tuesday or a Wednesday that I ain't ready, but not on Sunday. The bottom line is this. That's a good thing for you. That's a good place to have to go where you know the Bible's going to be 100%. They believe the book right down the line, and you can get everything you want. The good side about this church that if you've got a problem in here, you can come see me 24-7. Good thing about this church is that you can come over me. You want to learn the Bible. You don't have to just get the tapes. I'll sit down with you one-on-one -on -one throughout the week and help you put it together. We've got an institute for guys that are, or gals that are higher down the road that really want to get it together. We've got Discipleship 1. We've got Discipleship 2 now with Scott. We've got all these things cooking for you down the line, and that's all a good thing. But you know, it's also a bad thing. You know why? Because when you get all that stuff, it isn't much time you take that for granted too. Sure you do. Sure you do. Don't you take, did you take your, you kids growing up, don't you, didn't you take your parents for granted? I did. I mean, your parents, my dad worked two jobs. My mom worked two jobs. They grew up in a time when they did everything they could. You think I appreciate it? I appreciate it now. But I didn't appreciate it then. I took them for granted, just like you took them for granted. That's what we do. That's what human beings do. If something doesn't break that cycle, and the only thing I know that can break it is start seeing things like from God's standpoint, not your own standpoint. That'd break that cycle. So we're going to talk about these things here for a moment. I, I, love, I love bumper stickers. I, I think bumper stickers, believe it or not, and I'm a very simple guy, but I think bumper stickers will always tell you the heartbeat of America. I think whatever the raging bumper sticker is is where America's at. I really do. I really do. We saw, we, Barb and I were out riding somewhere the other day. We are going home from church, I think it was, and there was a guy in front of us that had an, had a, he didn't have an Obama sticker on his bumper. He went and got one of them metal things like they put on from the Ford companies, you know. They put, he had a metal thing that he had to drill through his trunk and put on there. Now, that's a guy that, he's for Obama. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I've never seen any of you riding around with my name stuck in your bolts of your car like that. But I think bumper stickers tell it all. And uh, I, I saw one, uh, before I tell you that one, I saw, uh, you know, I, I, I heard a thing today, uh, last week, it was on the radio, that I think it's in the next couple of weeks, at a big church in, in Kansas City here, that they're going to have a, a pray Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem conference. And it's a bunch of Christians and a bunch of Jews, Jewish rabbis, Jewish people. And they're all going to get together to try to solve out the problems going on in the Middle East and bring peace to Jerusalem. 
Now, when I look at something like that, and, and you may be a young Christian here today, and, I'm, and surely I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being sarcastic in what I'm saying, uh, but what I'm saying is compared to what the Bible says, I, I, you know, you see the stupidity of that. And the guy was talking about, oh, yeah, we, we take trips to the Holy Land with, together, and they go look at their Christian sites, and we go look at our Jewish sites. Now, we're going to get together, you know, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to talk about it, and, and, and we're going to try to come up with a plausible way to try to bring peace to the Middle East. Hey, you, you know what? Let me speak at that conference. I'll clear it out in the first 15 minutes. We'll find out, but we'll find out who won. Because you know what? The only way the peace is going to come, if I would be up there, I'd say to the rabbis and all the Jews, let me tell you something. The only way peace is going to come is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's going to come through the times and refreshing. You're going to have to go through the tribulation period because when he was on the cross, you said his blood be upon us and our people. Now, I'm with you and I love you. And I think if, if America really wants to help you, we need to give you all the military ammunition, all the guns, all the rockets, all the bombs and everything to blow everybody off the map over there, including us, if we ever turn our backs on you. But the bottom line is this. You're going to go through the tribulation. There ain't no point going over there to the Holy Land. You know why? Because it ain't holy until he comes back. And boy, you want peace in the Middle East? I'm all for it too. But you better look at Revelation chapter 19. You better look at Revelation chapter 21. You better look at Isaiah chapter 66. You better go back to the book of Ezekiel and look for Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, 38. You better find out what has to take place before that peace comes. See? Just me. That's part of my charm. See, I mean, you, you got to love me for that. <laughs> I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, prayer changes things. And I thought to myself, you know what? Bumper stickers always talk. They always, I think they always give the true temperature. The only bumper sticker I ever saw I really liked was one that had a skull on it with a big snake going through one of the eye and coming out its mouth with a dagger in the skull in the, in the teeth of the skull. And on the other side it said, kill them all, let God sort them out. Now that's the best one I saw. I have one, but I allowed to put it on a car. <laughs> Prayer changes. Now, you know, that's, that's, that's what most people in America, that's what we think. We think that prayer is our way that when we get into a circumstance that we don't like, something that's uncomfortable, something that we don't really care to be part of, some horrible situation, we think that prayer is our way of getting out of some horrible scenario we find ourselves in or to reverse the process in our lives that we really don't want to be in our lives. We think prayer changes the course of the world events. And uh, you know what? We talk about God, uh, there'll be one more great revival. You know, America, America will come back to God, you know, and all of those things. We think prayer is our way as God's people that when we find ourselves in a very nasty situation, a very uncomfortable situation, a situation that we don't really want to be in. That what we do is we now have the ability to go to prayer and then change God's mind so we don't have to go through it and ask God to get me back into my comfort zone. Let me tell you something. There's four things that have destroyed America, in uh, Christianity in America, and if not around the world. Somebody said, well, you know what? I believe America can come back to God. Really? Really? Let me ask you a question. You know what one of the problems you have about what's wrong in America? You don't know anything about history. Show me one nation in the history of the world. Which one? Just give me one. I don't want two. I'll take one. I'll even take half of one. Give me one nation in the world that once had the Bible, dumped the Bible, that ever got it back. Just one. All I want is one. One. That's all I want is one. Show me one nation in the history of the world who ever had it back. Germany had it. France had it, Spain had it, Czechoslovakia had it. Every nation and country on the face of this planet at one time had the Word of God. And when they rejected the book, you don't get it back. 
Now, America had it. For somebody to say, well, we'll get it back. You don't know anything about God and how he looks at things in history. That's one of the problems. One of the things that messed this country up was losing the book. Once you lost the book, you had no truth. The second thing that messed us up was the great prosperity of this country. The great prosperity of this country, and all we all like to be prosperous. We all like to have things. We all like to have nice houses. We all like to have, we all like to have nice cars, two or three cars. We all like to have this. We all like to have that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I am saying this. When you have all those things, you have a tendency to forget the real things in life. Great prosperity brought about no reality. And the third thing was the absence of the knowledge of history. We have no lessons we've learned. So what happens when we don't learn the lessons of history? We just keep on repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. And then the fourth thing is the absence of biblical prayer. We have no communication with the headquarters. In reality, prayer was never given so you and I could change God's mind about anything. But rather prayer... Prayer was given that you could get on the inside with what God was doing and understand better why you're going through what you're going through. I want to go back for a moment to what we talked about when I laid out the tabernacle up here. And I showed you how that within that tabernacle, it's a picture of your life and my life on the inside of the furnishings that we have. We had the, 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 the bread, which was a picture of the Word of God on the table of fellowship. We had the seven-pronged candlestick, which was a picture of the Holy Spirit of God that illuminated the Word of God, the bread. And then we had the, the altar of incense up there that was representative of our prayer life. And I told you how that the fire that lit those candles and the fire that, uh, come on, that lit that incense and that smoke filling that place was a picture of our prayers. And I took you back in the Bible and show you where that was. That fire had to be kindled off of the brazen altar. Why? Because it was the brazen altar where the sacrifice was made and that fire had to be what was used to light those things. And I told you, any prayer, and this is why we don't get our prayers answered. This is what the Holy Spirit of God is searching for when you and I pray. Where did that fire come from? Now, what is the importance of that? Why is that such a big deal? Why did Aaron's two boys get killed? Because they offered up strange fire. Why is God such a stickler on this point? Why should everything you and I do as a Christian go back to the cross of Calvary and the price that was paid? I'll tell you why especially in your prayer life. When you and I have a need, you and I are going through some struggle. You and I are going through some tough time in our life. Or you have some request that you're asking for or some need that you think you need. If your point of reference is in Calvary's cross and the sufferings that he paid on that cross, if, you, if it isn't ingrained and enrooted in you, the agony, the suffering, the price that was paid for your sin. If that is not where your prayer is rooted, like I'll tell you, if your prayer is rooted in that, when, you start, when we start to ask for the things that we ask for, when you have a point of reference that is His suffering, you see and I see how stupid what I'm asking for. You begin to realize that He suffered for me. Maybe He wants me to suffer for Him. Did that ever enter your mind? The reason our prayer life in most cases is worthless is that when we pray, which kindled with strange fire, we have no point of reference to keep us focused on what we're going through. When your prayer life is based on the cross 
and the price that was paid. You understand Christ's sufferings. You now have a point of reference for what your sufferings are. You know what? I meet people all the time that, that are always feeling sorry for themselves. And I, I, we, I get that way. I, I don't get that way very often. But we all do. We're human. And this is certainly, none of this is a criticism. Because I'm preaching to myself and I would never criticize myself. I, you know, I, but I'm telling you, the bottom line is, we all feel sorry for ourselves. You know the best thing for you and for me when we feel sorry for ourselves and we're going through some piddly little thing that we've magnified like it's the end, you know, and we think we're Elijah out there all by ourselves and you're going through some struggle? You know what you ought to do? You ought to go over to, you ought to, go over to, uh, you to, go over to uh, St. Joe Hospital and go through 4 West. You know what 4 West is? That's the cancer ward. You ought to talk to some people that only got six months to live. You got to go down to Children's Mercy Hospital and see those little eight or nine-year-old kids with their heads shaved. Got leukemia. Probably never see their 20th birthday. Look at their moms and dads standing over there hoping against all hope. Putting their faith and trust in some doctor and some chemotherapy. And when that doesn't work, the doctor comes down and he says, well, we got some experimental thing that we're going to try to work. Mom and dad, look into their eyes. Look at that pain. Look, you all got little kids. How'd you like to find yourself in a situation like that? You know what we need to do? We need to get out among some people who got some real problems in life. You know what it does? It puts ours in perspective, doesn't it? It's a reality check on where we're at. It's a reality check on where we're at. The bottom line is this. He suffered for you and for me. And ladies and gentlemen, I need to tell you something today. He may ask you and I to pay a price for him. Prayer helps you not to get out of it but helps you get through it for him. And that's the key. Now, I, I, we're going to come back to that. This kind of is like a little compartmental thing, and it's all going to tie together at the end, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but anyway, but we talked about the fallacy of fasting. And I, 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 I got I to gotta show you this. Now, I want you to get two passages, because here's what it is. We talked about this last week. Well, you like the idea that when you pray and God doesn't answer your prayer, that if you get hungry, God will feel sorry for you. That if you don't eat, if you don't eat, if you, don't, if you go a day or two days or three days, that God is going to come down and look at you and say, oh my, he's about ready to die. We got, guys, we got to do something because Bob, he's staggering down here. That's not what it's for. Now I'm going to give you the two definitive passages in the Bible on fasting, and I'm going to show you how the Bible always interprets itself. I'm going to show you one of the greatest things you'll ever learn about the Bible anywhere on planet Earth. You don't have to necessarily say you got it from me because I stole it from somebody else anyhow. Psalm 69.10, let's go there first. Let's get that in one hand and then get Psalms 35.13 in the other hand. Fasting was never intended to get your prayers answered. Never was. Never was. But I'll show you what it was intended to do. Now, I'm going to show you two of the greatest defining verses anywhere in the Word of God. Go to Psalm 69, 10 first, and then go to Psalm 35, 13 second. All right, let's look at Psalm 69, 10. Watch it very carefully. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to what? My reproach. 
All right? Now flip over to Psalms 35, verse 13. Let me show you how the Holy Spirit of God changes the words and shows you what you got. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. You see, the last place it was chastened. This place it's humbled. He changed the word chastened to humble to show you what he's trying to get across to you. But, when I, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. Here it comes. And my prayer was answered. Is that what it says? No, that's mine says, and I'm reading from the reverse revision. It says, it says, but for as for me, oh, this is the this is the this is the modern Laodicean Christian get your prayer answered uh, Bible I got here. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer was answered. That's not what it says. It says, My my prayer returned into my own bosom. You understand what you've got here? Fasting was never intended to get your prayers answered, but it was intended for you and me to chasten and to humble our soul. That you pray something, that that prayer returned back to you. And because you're going through a fasting state, and if you've never fasted, let me tell you something, you ought to try it for just a day or two days, just, to, just for the experience. You know what fasting does? It shows you how rotten and despicable our flesh really is. It shows you and me how little control we have over our flesh. I've talked to men who were alcoholics and they said, Oh, I'm not really an alcoholic. I can stop whenever I want to. Yeah, right. Watch them try to stop. I've had people that smoke cigarettes all their lives and said, Well, you know what? I can stop whenever I want. I just don't want to. Try to stop. You know what you see very quickly? You're not in control of anything. Your flesh is controlling you. Don't eat a meal. Get up in the morning, pass on breakfast, pass on lunch, pass on dinner, and about 8 o'clock tomorrow night, call me if you're still alive. You'll all be alive. But I tell you this, you'll have cramps. You'll have a headache. You'll be dizzy. Dizzier than you already are. You'll be, you'll be moaning. You'll be saying, oh, man, I am so hungry. Your, your stomach will be growling. The neighbors will call up and say, well, you feed that thing. It's keeping the kids awake tonight. You, 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 you know, you, you're, and what you will get out of it is that your flesh is so vile. My flesh is, I am so out of control of it that I can't miss two meals a day without that flesh rearing up in revolt. That's what you need to understand when you're trying to find out and get on the same page with God what you're going through. you got to come to the end of self. And when you're fasting and you're praying, it chastens your soul, it humbles your soul, and it brings your prayer right back to your heart. And it shows you, here I am asking God for this, and I am so despicable. I am so weak. I, I, I can't do anything on my own. My flesh is such in control that I can't even miss a meal without a headache, without the shakes, without my knees being wobbly. It helps you to get on the same, me to get on the same wavelength as God is on by even further revealing how weak I am, how proud I am, 
how arrogant I am, how despicable I am, and how much my flesh really has control. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that'll be on one of your little three-by-five cards. It's the greatest verse I know in the Bible that really lays you and me out. It says in verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he answers in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the hearts, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his way and according to the fruit of his doings. Fasting helps you to get even more to the end of self, that you get yourself out of the way, that you have to get sometimes in your life, ladies and gentlemen, when you're going through something and some struggle is in your life and you can't get, God didn't give you prayer so you could get out of it. God didn't give you prayer so you could change directions on it. He didn't get you prayer so you could get out from under it and get the comfort. He gave you prayer. Well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you why he gave it here in just a second. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Two things here we got to see. And we'll look at verse 27. Back to Romans 8, 27. We've got to see this. Let's pick it up in verse 26. It says, Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Now here it comes. Two things you want to get. Because he maketh intercession for the saints. Here it comes. According to the will of God. Next verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called. Second thing. According to his purpose. Then there is a purpose to your suffering. There is a purpose while you're going through what you're going through. And it goes back to the will of God in your life. Somebody raise your hand and tell me what I've talked to you over the years. What is the will of God for you? What is the will of God? Yes, ma'am. Be more like Christ every day of your life. All right. If you're going to be more like Christ every day of your life, what would you think that you would want to do more every day of your life to fit into that? I already told you that earlier in the message. Somebody raise your hand and tell me that. What is it? Let this mind be in you and also like Christ Jesus. So if you're going to be more like Him, and that is the will of God, that you're more like Christ every day, and that comes to the point that you, you become, uh, hit His mind in you, then what's the second greatest aspect of Christ that you better buckle your seatbelt on? Somebody raise your hand and tell me that. You're the only one who knows the Bible in this whole church. No, you're wrong. You're dumb. John, <laughs> suffering. How do you become more like Christ every day of your life? How do, if the Bible says that, that, that he became your sacrifice and you and I are being living sacrifice. You know what that means? That means that you and I have to go through things in life and suffer for him. Now, the latest in church, We'll never get to it. And I want to say this, and I, I always am very careful of this. Kids, I know there's a lot of young Christians here in this church. And I know there's a lot of people in here that I look at you and, boy, I'll tell you what, you are the cream of the crop for as I'm concerned. But I also understand what I'm saying today you might not be able to get to. And I don't want you going out of here today feeling bad about that. I want you to go out of here today thinking heavily on that, but I don't want you to beat yourself up today because you're in a process 
And I can, best I can see, from best I can tell, 98% of you are going to make that process and that transition that you come to that point in your life. But it's sermons like this. It's many series like this on prayer. It's getting into the Bible on this level that gets you to that point and helps you make that transition. So you may not, you may not be able to say, well, God, I am, I'm willing to suffer anything for you. You may not be there yet. I'm not putting that on you today. I don't want you to walk out of here and think you're a failure because you can't walk out in the middle of I-70 with a sign that says, I'm giving my life for Jesus and get hit with a truck. You'll get there. But I know that the Laodicean church cannot grab this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, I talked a little while back about the despicable prosperity and what it brings into our country, into our, into our own lives. The great mark of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Because thou sayest, this church, I am rich and increased with goods. I have need of nothing. And that includes God and the Holy Spirit of God and God's prayer. We don't need prayer. Most of us can buy our way out of anything we get into until it comes to children's mercy. Till comes the four west. There's some things that money can't buy you that only God can get through to you on. Now when it comes to our prayer life, we have to understand according to His will, according to His purpose. It talked about thinking like God, seeing things from His standpoint. Now in our first lesson, we talked about an unsaved man in prayer, how God doesn't hear the prayers of an unsaved man. And I showed you from the book of Ecclesiastes that time and chance happens to an unsaved man. Right place, wrong time, wrong place, right time. Time and chance. But time and chance will never, never in, find its way into a Christian's life. God has a purpose for you. The moment you got saved, the moment you got saved, God had a purpose for you. He has something that He wants you to accomplish with your life. You may never accomplish it. You may never get there. You may never accomplish it. You may never get there. That does not take away the fact that he has something for you that he wants to accomplish through your life. He has a purpose for you. You find that purpose, that plan, only as you fulfill the will of God and become more like him and begin to see the things in life, the decisions you got to make, the process, the function, and everything else from his standpoint and quit looking at it from your own. What I'm about to give you right now, as far as a Christian is concerned, will probably be the greatest thing I've ever given you or can ever give you. I don't know of anything that I ever have given you in the past, and I've given you a lot of good things that were very valuable to you, but nothing that I ever will give you will be as valuable to you as what I'm giving you right now in this next section. This will be more valuable to you than anything else you'll ever get from me. And you'll get a lot of good things because I share with you what God gives me. But I will never be able to top in your Christian life for where you're at, for what you're wanting to accomplish and where most of you are wanting to get. Here it comes. And you need to understand what I'm about to say. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about the misconceptions of prayer. We're talking about the struggles that we all go through. Now let me just say this to you. He said, for them are called according to his purpose. 
things happen in your life and my life for three reasons. It won't be four. It won't be five. It'll be three. One of these three, or in some cases, a combination of these three. But you can safely say that everything you're going to find yourself in, every circumstance you're going to find yourself in, every decision you've got to make, every process that comes into your life, everything that you're going to struggle with tomorrow, the next day, or the rest of your life, every issue you've got to face, everything that comes your way, it's going to be fall into one of these three categories. All you've got to do as a Christian is define which category it is. That's all you got to do. I've told you time and time again the Christian life is not complicated. We like to make it complicated. It's not complicated. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now that wherever you're at in your world, whatever you're going through, or whatever you ever will go through, you can safely, if you remember this, you can forget everything else I said. I hope you don't, but you could. If you just go home with this today, you will be farther ahead than you have ever been in your life if you understand what I'm about to say. Things happen to us for one of three reasons. And this will greatly help you to have an intelligent, biblically, a biblical prayer life. Things happen, first of all, in our lives. And this is the most obvious. Because we're out of fellowship with God. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because it's pretty obvious. But let me just talk to you for a second here. I see so many Christians that are sinking. They're like a boat that's sinking. And it's like they hit a rock. And the water's coming in the boat. And they're going to sink. But you know what they do? They get a bucket. And they start bailing out the water. And they actually think that by bailing the water out of their sinking ship that they're not going to sink. Now, to me, this is a no-brainer. If I'm in a ship and there's water coming in a hole and I hit a rock, what is the best way to keep me from sinking? Fix the hole. That's profound. You see, the more water you're bailing out, it's still coming in. In other words, until you fix the root problem in your life, you're going to wear yourself out bailing. At the end of the day, the ship is still going to sink. You've got to fix the hole. There was an old lady one time in a church, and every time the pastor would give the invitation, she'd come down in the middle and make a scene in front of everybody. And she'd, she'd, everybody'd come down, you know, and she'd come down and she'd do the same every time, every week, every week. She'd come down there and she, she'd come down and she'd hit the altar and she'd say, Oh God, oh God, fill me with again with your spirit. And she'd get up and she'd go back down, make a spectacle. Every week, months, a year went on. And the preacher got, he got, you know what I mean? When it's real, it's real. When it isn't, it isn't. So one Sunday he said, I'm going to fix this, old dear sister. So she comes down, same thing. She comes down, falls on her knees, cries out, Oh God, fill me again with thy spirit. The preacher says, No God, just fix the leak. That's what's wrong. We need to fix the hole. 
Now, you think that you can figure that out. All of my life, I've seen God's people who get in some of the most unbelievable predicaments in their life. I've seen it affect their families. I've seen it affect their kids. I've seen it, them lose their wives. I've seen wives lose their husband. I've seen them get into scenarios that it was just, it was just, it was just, and for the life of me. And then after it all happens, after it all happens, they walk around and they say, now why did God put me through that? Why did that happen? Hello! You violated every principle there ever was. You violated somebody didn't even know existed. You did your thing your way all of your life. You did it exactly the way you wanted to do it. You didn't care about God. I saw you in jams when God came through for you. And as soon as God got you back on your feet and took care of you, you dumped him and went right back to your arrogant attitude. Hello, what, what's, what part of you can't get away if you're a child of God without being what he wants you to be? Do you not understand? Would you just allow your child to do it when you go home to break things? Mom and dad say, now don't do that, Johnny. Hey, mom and dad, take that. <laughs> if you said to little Ralph, hey, Ralph, now don't, don't do that. Ralph comes up, and boom, I'll do it if I want to. How about when you pick him up and there's a little guy and you say, oh, you're cute. And he goes. <laughs> Would you put up with that? How about if you had some friends over and you're over there and a kid comes in and he says, hey, you're really fat. <laughs> Would you say, oh, it's a cute part of his charm. Would you allow your kid to do that? Would you allow him to break everything in your house? Would you allow him to just to run rampant and do whatever he wants to do? I hope not. Well, you know why you shouldn't? Because you ought to be a good, responsible parent who has an accountability factor for those kids. Well, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly fathers in heaven give good things to them that ask him? He's going to hold you and me accountable just like you hold your kids accountable. What part of that don't you understand? What, what part of that don't you grasp? I'm going to give you a verse you ought to put down here. And boy, if you, that one you ought to memorize. You ought to memorize it backwards and forwards. You ought to have it on your mirror when you shave in the morning. You ought to have it on your rearview mirror uh, in your car. You ought to have it everywhere you go. And it's found in one of the greatest principles anywhere. And brother, it is a principle. Job chapter 9 verse 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and prospered. Now, what part of that don't you get? Nobody twisted your arm to get saved. Nobody made you trust Christ, your own personal Savior. You did it as your own free will. And when you did, you're not your own now. You're bought with a price. You don't have a right to do your own thing. You don't have a right to cop an attitude with God. You don't have a right to get mad at God if it doesn't go your way and then God fixes it and you tell him to stick it again. Do you actually think God's going to allow, do you actually think that you're going to prosper in your Christian life when your attitude is against Him? Oh boy. You got some lessons to learn. 
And tragedy is it's going to cost you your children. It's going to cost you your wife, your marriage. It might even cost you your own freedom. It's going to cost you the rearview mirror. Now, in your car, you ought to have it everywhere you go. And it's found in one of the greatest principles anywhere. And brother, it is a principle. Job chapter 9, verse 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and prospered? Now what part of that don't you get? Nobody twisted your arm to get saved. Nobody made you trust Christ, your own personal Savior. You did it as your own free will. And when you did, you're not your own now. You're bought with a price. You don't have a right to do your own thing. You don't have a right to cop an attitude with God. You don't have a right to get mad at God if it doesn't go your way and then God fixes it and you tell him to stick it again. Do you actually think God's going to allow, do you actually think that you're going to prosper in your Christian life when your attitude is against him? Oh boy. You got some lessons to learn. And tragedy is it's going to cost you your children. It's going to cost you your wife, your marriage. It might even cost you your own freedom. It's going to cost you the price tag with that is going to come so heavy and so high. And still, you're going to walk around and say, I wonder what happened. How did this happen? Preacher, tell me. Oh, may I tell you? So the first thing you can look at, and this doesn't take, you know what? The good thing about the first one. It doesn't need any explanation. We all know when we're not right with God. You may have your Sunday face on this morning, and you may have it all done up and have the big old, got the big old 50-pound Bible out today, and you may be praising the Lord and amen and all over the place, and you may be, but the bottom line is, and I don't need, it's between you and the Lord, but the bottom line is, you, you know where you're at this morning. I have never met, a, I've never been a time in my life when I did something wrong or I was wrong that even though I said to everybody else, I was right, deep down inside, the Lord said, no, you weren't. I say, Shh, keep that to yourself. <laughs> he said, okay, I will, between me and you. Is that what you want? Yeah, good enough for me. Wham! Second thing. Now, when you get past the first one and you know that it's, you're right with God because you're going to go through things in your life and you're going to have some bad times come in your life, and it's not going to be because you're not doing what's right with God. I want to tell you that. And you've got to look at sometimes when you go through something, if it's not the first one, then you've got to ask, and you need to be honest with yourself, then you've got to ask yourself, then God wants to strengthen me through this. You know, the Bible says to prove all things, and God puts himself into that category, because in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, he says, prove me. Sometimes God puts us in scenarios because that's the only way we grow. Sometimes, you know, you know the old thing at the gym, no pain, no gain? Sometimes you've got to stretch those muscles and you've got you to hurt to, get to, the, get to the next level. So sometimes God will put you in some things and allow you to go through some things so you'll, so you'll get to the next level, so you'll grow through it. Now, I'm going to save that one because we're going to get into that one next week and the third one, but I'll give you the third one right now. Sometimes if it isn't the first one, it isn't the second one. And sometimes these are combinations. You've got to know that. But if it isn't the first one and the second one, then I guarantee you it's because somebody else needs what you're going through. Somebody else needs what you're going through. This is called God consciousness. I'm going to give you a great verse. Another great verse. 
Look at Romans chapter 14. Verse 7 and 8. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. Every Christian should understand sitting here this morning that it's a matter of God's will in your life to be more like Him and God's purpose in His life and what He wants to put you through. Every Christian should understand that we live not for ourselves but for God to give Him the honor and glory out of our lives. The mark of a mature, and maybe some of you aren't here this morning, I totally understand that. But the mark of a mature, strong Christian is one who knows and understands that it's that, and is at peace with God in the fact that God can get more honor and glory out of everything in my life, whether it's good or it's bad. Let me ask you a question. What if God could get more out of honor and glory out of you or me going through some affliction than he could out of you, me, and being whole? Anybody here know a guy by the name of David Ring? Anybody know a guy by the name of David Ring? Good. I suggest this afternoon, if you have some time, go, get up on your computer and Google him in. Just put David Ring and watch what comes up. You know who David Ring is? He's a young man that when he was born, he was born with terrible, terrible cere uh, cerebral palsy. The doctors thought he wouldn't live past he was five years old, but he did. The doctors said that uh, he would never have a family. The doctor said he would never work. The doctor said that he would never, never, never be able to communicate. He was so severe in what he had. The doctor said he would never walk. He would never have a family. He would never communicate. And now he's 40-some years old. And he's one of the most dynamic evangelists that you'll have ever here in your life. At some point, I'm going to have David Ring come to our church. I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know, in a day and age that we live in, when we are so selfish, and we look at our little problems, and we look at our little things that we go through, and we magnify it, because here is a man who you ought to see him. He's one of the most handsome men that I ever met, but his hands are twisted, and his legs are crooked. Eddie, he can't talk. Eddie, he talks like, my, my name is David Ring. And he says, I want to tell you today about my Jesus. He said, I want to tell you today that I was lost. And I, I, I'm not a very good preacher. And he says, but I want to tell you. He said, I want to sing a song. He says, I, I heard an old, old story. How my Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Oh, I heard about his healing of his cleansing power revealing. How he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. He'll break your heart. 
men and women sitting out there that have both their legs, have both their arms, can speak clearly. Here's a man that has an affliction that we look at and he could have given up so easily. He could have been just like us who looks for any little thing in his life. Check him on the website this afternoon. Look at him, and, and, and here there's even some excerpts of his message. Hear him speak and hear him talk. Here's a man that you had, wouldn't even know that he had an infirmity. Guy got up and introduced him one time, and he said, we have David Ring here today, and David, would you come up and just give us about three minutes of a testimony? And David comes up and he says, thank you, Pastor. Pastor, want me to give you testimony about three minutes. Pastor, I can't even say my name in three minutes. God used him all over this country. You see, whatever you're going through today, whatever I'm going through today, is nothing. That kid hurts every day when he gets up. Oh, we are so selfish. Oh, I'll tell you what, a guy like that, he just, the first time I heard him, I just wept. I just got on my knees and wept. I couldn't stop crying. I thought to myself, oh, God, I'm so selfish. Oh, God, I'm so full of myself. I'm so full of this and that. And here's a man that I complain about so many stupid things and so many dumb things. And here's a guy that he can't walk and he can't talk and he can't use his hands. And yet he stands there. With the, what a song to sing. He's got the victory. We sing it. We owe nothing about it. What if God could get more glory and honor out of you going in affliction like that? Would you say, God, go ahead? Would you say, God, go ahead? You go to the doctor someday and he comes back and he says, well, I got some bad news for you. You got cancer. Can you say glory to God? Can you walk out of there saying, well, God, this is not how I would have played it, but if this is what you want for me, to God be the glory. What if God could get more honor and glory out of your death than he could your life? Back in that bookstore back there, there's a book you ought to get called David Brainerd, The Life and Times of David Brainerd. David Brainerd lived in the early 1700s, came over in the, when the colonies were started. David Brainerd died when he was 29 years of age of tuberculosis and pneumonia. David Brainerd was a young man that had such a burden for the American Indians. He married one of the daughters of one of the great preachers, Jonathan Edwards. But David Brainerd, he wanted to go to the Indians in Pennsylvania and New York. And he wanted to strike out as a missionary. And he had such a burden and a fever and a fervor for the American Indians who were lost without Christ. And David Brainerd struck out on his own in the great snowdrifts of Pennsylvania in the wintertime of New York. And he'd go out to the American Indians and he'd try to tell them about Christ and he didn't want to hear it. He One time he preached a message to a bunch of Indians through a drunken Indian as an interpreter and nobody got saved. He spent long hours under the pine trees of New York and, 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 and Pennsylvania praying for the American Indians when he had fever so bad from the pneumonia that it, 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 the heat from his body melted holes and pools of water down through him. He died when he was 29 years old. 
When, he, when you saw him, he looked like he was 129. He never had one convert in his life that anybody knows about. By the standards of Christianity today, he was every bit of failure. He was every bit of failure. He went out there in the woods, prayed eight hours a day in the freezing cold because he had a burden to win the American Indian. And he never won one convert to Christ in 29 years. And he died. He died in a bed full of tuberculosis and consumption and pneumonia. He died never fathering any children. He died never building a church. He died never having one person respond to his message. But he left behind a, a, a journal. And in that journal, he wrote about his burden. He described how he, he prayed and how his tears froze on his face. He, he talked about shivering in the woods so cold while he prayed for the American Indians. He, he talked about his burden and his crying and his prayers for the American Indian. And he left that all in a journal. I can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of men and women down through the years have read the journal of David Brainerd. But I know that three that did. There was a young man growed up behind him in the 1800s by the name of William Carey. William Carey had a burden to go to be a missionary. And he found the journal of David Brainerd. And he read that journal and it burned into his heart. And then he gave the rest of his life to go to India. Never came back to the States. Buried in India. I think of Robert McShane who read the diaries of David Brainerd and went to the nation of Israel to the Jews. I think of Henry Martin. I think of how that, that he read it and how he went also to India. And in those three men's lives, probably millions and millions and millions of men and women came to Christ because one man who never won a convert in his life was willing to say, God, if you can get more honor and glory out of my death than you can my life, do what you got to do. Didn't see him getting mad at God because he didn't get what he wanted. You didn't hear him say, oh God, can you fix this, change this? God, could you call me to Florida where the Indians are warmer? He paid the price on the field. Never won one convert to Christ, but probably three or four million people. And goes on probably to this day. Of the men and women that read his journal. See that absolute pure burden that he had. And come to the place that he did. That most of God's people never get. God, take me and use me. Bring me to the place where you can have the honor and glory. You know what it really comes down to? It comes down to this. It's how much are you willing to give yourself to God? It's really what it comes down to. It's really what it comes down to. You listen to a guy like David Ring and you read the stories of a David uh, Bruder, uh, uh, Brainerd, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't have a, you and I don't have anything to say. I believe that you ought to do everything in your power to stay strong and healthy for God. I really do. 
I think you ought to stay in shape. I think you ought to keep your weight down. I think you ought to eat right. I think you ought to get good physical activity whenever you can. I think you only got one body to give to God, and when you blow it, it's gone. I think you ought to think, keep things out of the temple that defile it and destroy it. I think you ought to stay as pure to God and let your body be what God wanted it to be. But you know what? When some tragedy befalls you, when God puts you through some affliction, when you get to the place in your life that when you get to that point where God puts you into something and something comes into your life, you better go back and realize that that thing has only happened for one of three reasons. And when you examine yourself and you look at the inside of yourself and you say, well, I'm right with God. There's nothing wrong here. I got it where God wants me to be. Then you need to look and say, okay, God, you went through it on the cross for me, I'm going to go through it for you. I'm not saying you're all there. I'm not saying I'm there. But I'm saying that's where we need to be. You need to come to the place where you realize that you're going through something because he has something. He either wants you to gain from it or he wants somebody else to gain from it. I think of old David Ring. I think of how many hundreds of thousands of Christians. I have never seen him preach where there was a dry eye in the place five minutes after he started preaching. And it certainly wasn't anything that he said. But you know what it is? Because everybody in that place is saying, my God, if a man like that can do what he's doing, my God, what's wrong with me? My God, how selfish I am. My God, how that's all around me. If a man like that who had that stack, stacked against him, who the odds against him doing what he's doing, and who can't speak, who doesn't, he, he's not pleasant to look at, he's not pleasant to listen to. If a man up there can get up there and sing the song, Victory in Jesus, with his affliction, my God, what's wrong with me? That's where we're at. That's where we're at. Three things in your life, three reasons why things happen in your life. And this is the beginning of biblical, intelligent prayer, being honest with yourself. Looking at your own self and saying, God, I can't stick my head in the sand anymore. I got an attitude toward you. And you know what? I've had an attitude for a long time. And the bottom line is, I ain't prospering it very well. And Lord, Lord, if I don't get this right, I'm going to be in a cardboard box under I-435 for long. And yet for some people, that's what it's going to take. Some people, that won't even be enough. Say, how do you know that? Just go down to the City Union Mission with us. 99% of the guys down there have probably been saved at some point in their life and still come to the point where they just won't get rid of it. I told the story. My daddy died when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, of lung cancer. And I, I never forget, I was in the Army, and I, I called my mom on an Easter because they were going to come up. And my mom began to break down and cry on the phone. And I said, what's the matter, Mom? And she said, well, your daddy just been diagnosed with lung cancer. She says, it's all one lung and it's in the other lung. And she said, we're not going to be able to come. She says, can you come home? Well, I got, an, you know, uh, he had went in and had surgery and, and, and I finally got my leave, and emergency leave, and I got to go home. And I'll never forget, I, 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 the last time I'd seen my dad, he was a good-sized strapping man. He was a steel worker, worked in a steel mill all of his life. I will never forget that night. I got in late, flew into Cleveland. Somebody had to pick me up and bring me home. I walked into my house and there was my dad who, who came out to meet me uh, out at the front door, weighed about 75 pounds. I mean, I, I, I was just, I, I don't, it wouldn't know what to say. I watched him and I, and I, he, I sh look, when they had cut him from here all the way around his back, all the way up to the other side, they had literally lifted him open and took out one complete lung, took out part of the other lung, and then sewed it back up, and he only had a partial lung that he could work on. My dad smoked four or five packs of cigarettes a day from the time he was 15 years old. 
I don't ever remember my dad without a cigarette in his hand. After he had that surgery, after he went through everything he went through, I come home one day and my mom was mad at my dad, which was a normal thing in our house. <laughs> and I said, what's going on? She says, oh, your daddy, she just drives me nuts. I said, what's going on? I said, you know, she said, you know what? After all he's been through, they cut out one lung, put out half the other lung. He's got stitched from one side to the other. And what does he do? I catch him down in the garage having a cigarette. Never got over it. Took him right to his grave. Took him right to his grave. If my dad could have let God's Holy Spirit control him as good as a pack of cigarettes, he'd be alive today. I wish I was dedicated to my God as my dad was to his cigarettes. My dad couldn't go 15 minutes without one. I can go all day without saying something to God. You see, folks, it's about how much we're willing to give to God of ourselves. Prayer isn't about you and me fixing things that we want fixed to get our own way. It's when we get into a circumstance or a situation, we look at one of three things. First of all, am I where I need to be with God? If not, get there. Fix it. Get right with God. Second thing is, okay, I'm going through this. I'm not going through this because I smoked cigarettes or I did this or I did that. I'm going through this because God put this affliction on me. Okay, God, whatever you want through this, take it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I'd rather choose something else. But you know what? You did what you did for me. This is what you want. It's all right with me. How many of God's people can get there? How many can God's people can get there? And then after it's all over with, I bet you old David Brainerd, when he died, went to heaven. I bet she went in that old pearly gate with his hand in his pocket and his head down, tears streaming down his face. Walks up and there's the Lord waiting for him. He said, David, how you doing? He says, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, you know what? I don't know what I did wrong. I just screwed it up from one end to the other. I tried the best I could. He said, really? Really? Really messed it up, did you? He said, yes, I did. He says, David, let me show you something. I'm going to tell you something, David. You don't always get it all down on that side. Sometimes you get it on this side. Come on, I'm going to show you something. Channel 6. <laughs> See that little guy right there? He's reading your journal. You know who that is? That's William Carey. William Carey lived a whole hundred years after you died, but your journal survived when you didn't. And I'm taking that man to India, and there's a hundred million people going to get saved. Every church in India is going to go back to that man. And you know what, David? It not only goes back to him, it goes back to the point source from which he got his, and it was you. Because you know what, David? When you were down there praying in the, in the woods of Pennsylvania and New York, and your fever was so bad, and you were laying in pools of water from your fever, melting that snow, you know what I saw when I searched your heart? I saw fire off the altar of God. David, you don't always get it down here. Sometimes you get it over there. These are lessons you need to learn, my friend. Prayer wasn't given so you and I can change what we don't like. It was given so we could get ourselves on the same wavelength where God's at and better understand what he's doing so we could better be in touch with what's going on. Misconceptions of prayer? 
how God answers your prayer. Third lesson now, how to pray. Some things you have a right to ask God to change, some things you don't. As you grow in the Lord, you'll learn better what those are. Next week, I'm going to talk to you why bad things happen to good people. And we're going to take this thing of the will and the purpose and the three things that we talked about, we're going to take this thing all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you so much. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for our visitors today. And Lord, may they avail themselves of our tapes back there. To, they want to get this whole series. And Lord, uh, we'll send them next week so if they want to get at their address and we'll give it to them. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for, uh, for all that you do. Help us, Lord, to understand. Help Help us to be in the mind of God. Help us to understand that things happen to us. We get so full of ourselves. We get so caught up with who we are. We think we're so something special. When in actuality, Lord, we ought to be just whatever you want us to be to whoever we need to be to it. Lord, I love you. And I thank you for these folks. I, I love them so much. And I'm so thankful that they're, they're part of my life and that you put them in part of my ministry here in Kansas City. I thank you for the men and the women who labor every day, who go side by side with me in everything that I do. The Lord, together, we work through and pull through. We go through the good times and the bad times. And the Lord, always let this church be here for what the intended purpose it is. It has to give people the opportunity. Maybe they won't all do it. But we never not to give people the opportunity to do what's right and build their relationship with God. Father, we do thank you and praise you now. We love you. Thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen.